Okay, if you want to turn in your Bibles to the small little letter to Philemon, uh, you'll find it just before the book of Hebrews. As I said earlier, it's just a, a 25 little verse letter uh, written by Paul. And we're going to spend a bit of time just going through this this morning and uh, just seeing what lessons are there for us to learn. Let's uh, bow our hearts, shall we? Father, we thank you, as we always do, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it is living and powerful. And Lord, we say that every week, but Lord, it is living and powerful. And Father, it changes us. It changes the way that we think about ourselves, about others, about the world around us. And most importantly, it changes, Lord, our own perception of you. Because your word reveals who you really are. Lord, not who we might think you are, but who you really are. And Father, through your word, we pray that you would give us just a greater and deeper awe and reverence of you. A greater love for you, we pray. And Lord, as we study these things this morning, help us to be challenged. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't have any preconceptions or Lord, any hardness that would stop your spirit working and moving in our lives. But Lord, we pray too that we'd be encouraged. And Lord, strengthen through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to read you, before we uh, get into the study proper, just the introduction in uh, Henrietta C. Mears' book, What the Bible's All About. If you've not got a copy of that, it's a really useful book. It just gives a brief summary of uh, all the books of the Bible. Um, in the Understanding Philemon uh, section, it says, Christian love and forgiveness are given prominence in this book. It shows the power of the gospel in winning a runaway thief and slave, and in changing a master's mind. This is a book in applied Christianity, a textbook of social service. The Reverend Sir W. Robertson Nicoll once said, If I were to covet any honour of authorship, it would be this, that some letters of mine might be found on the desks of my friends when their life struggle is ended. We don't know whether Paul coveted this honour or not, but tucked away in your New Testament between Titus and Hebrews, you will find a model letter written by a master of letter writing. It is a personal letter from Paul to Philemon. Only one chapter of 25 verses, but containing such strong and beautiful statements and so well expressed that it stands out as a gem, even in the book of books. That's a fitting introduction to the study this morning. What we're going to see here is a model that's laid down. And we were looking last week at a number of different models and these things we see in Scripture that are really just evidence of this skillful, deliberate design that permeates the whole of the Bible. As we said last time, the Bible is an integrated message system. And you'll see that within this letter, which was a, a real situation that had occurred in round about 64 AD, roughly the time that Paul was writing this, and yet within the, the details, we see an incredible story. Paul, we see, is a type of Christ in this letter. Philemon is a type of the father. Onesimus, this character we'll be introduced to, was a runaway and rebellious servant, i.e. you, and then Tychius is a type of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the, the cast in a sense. Let's just look at them in a little bit more detail. Philemon, we understand, was uh, an elder at the church at Coloss. We have the letter in the New Testament to the Colossians. And we'll talk a bit more about that in just a brief moment. But the church there met at his home. And he was one of the, the leadership team of that fellowship. The letter is actually a, a private letter to him and his immediate family, as we'll see. But the greetings, both at the beginning and the end of the letter, imply that this was also intended for the fellowship. This is for all of them. And you'll see why that becomes a little bit tricky in a moment. Paul is going to present really quite an audacious request to Philemon. 
But Paul is going to say that he's willing to bear the cost of the request himself. And what he wants to do is ensure that Onesimus is restored and forgiven. The church there at Coloss, Ephrathus, we'll talk about him briefly later, uh, was actually the pastor of the fellowship there. Seemingly at this point he was with Paul. But Onesimus, let's talk about him because he's in a sense one of the main characters uh, of this short little letter. He was a servant, a slave in, in the sense of Philemon at this time. And of course in the Roman Empire there were lots of slaves at that time in history. Yet at some point he stole from Philemon, we don't know how much, but a reasonable sum it would seem, and ran away to Rome. Now most scholars think, and probably it's, it's a very logical deduction, that the money he stole was enough to finance his trip to Rome. Um, it had obviously taken some cost and expense to get there, um, and Rome was a great place to hide, because it was a big city, and there were thousands and thousands of slaves milling around in Rome. So if he was going to blend in and hide, it was a great place to go and do that. But instead of just finding refuge in this city, he bumps into Paul. Isn't it amazing how God does those things, arranges those little meetings that we didn't expect or plan? You've heard about a couple of those kind of scenarios already this morning. But he bumps into Paul and as a result, he's converted. Now Paul seemingly already knew him because of the fellowship that was there in Colossum, because of Philemon and so on. And maybe Paul recognises him. And in this place where he'd gone to probably find a little bit of uh, solitude, a little bit of anonymity, all of a sudden he meets somebody and goes, Anasimus! Incredible situation. Now, interestingly, his name means profitable. Uh, that's interesting because we, we find that he was once, in a sense, worthless. He'd kind of run away and, you know, to Philemon, um, certainly the value he had had gone. But now he starts to live up to that name, as we see. And because of his conversion to Christianity, he ends up serving Paul and ministering to Paul. Paul, by the way, at this time is in prison. And so quite how they met the circumstances, we're not given the details. But this individual, known as Profitable... You know, isn't that just how God does things? You see, God sees you how you can be in Christ. He doesn't see you as you are right now or as you were ten years ago or two years ago or whatever. He sees you as you can be. Seventy-seven times in the New Testament we have that phrase, in Christ. And that's how God sees us. He sees us not as sinners that have fallen short of his glory. He sees us as in Christ, clothed in Christ's righteousness. What an incredible work of grace that is. Now Paul, because of the fact that Onesimus has become really helpful to him, would love to have kept him there as his friend and helper, but because he knows that he's the property of Philemon, he insists that he goes back to see his master. Now that must have been an interesting conversation in itself, just trying to convince Onesimus to go back. But you'll see why Onesimus was willing to do so as we carry on. Well, another part of this is that he was leaving Rome to go back, as, as Paul was asking, um, now as a Christian. Before he'd run away, he was just a, a pagan slave. But now, he's a Christian. And so, he's going back to Philemon, and Paul's asking Philemon to receive Onesimus as a beloved brother. Not just as a slave anymore, not as a pagan, not as just somebody to come back to do things for him, to serve him, but as a brother in Christ. 
Now, it can be assumed that Philemon did indeed respond to this appeal that we're going to see in this letter in a moment, because otherwise, probably this letter would never have been circulated. As we said already, that the letter seemingly was intended directly for Philemon and his household, but also for the church as a way of encouraging them. And the fact that we have record of it today, we have it just tucked away here in the Bible, we seem to indicate that Philemon did indeed respond, and then it becomes such a great, powerful testimony. Now again, it seems to have all occurred about the time that Paul would have received news from Ephrathus, who was again the pastor at Coloss, of the threat to the church there, which then gave rise to Paul writing the letter, or the epistle to the Colossians. Now, <clears throat> we also have Tychius, because this is the individual that Paul then entrusts with carrying not only the letters, which we'll mention in a moment, but also the responsibility to protect Onesimus on the way back. There would have been a number of slave catchers, for want of a better word, to try and out there, trying to find runaway slaves. There was a lot of money on uh, these individuals' heads. And if they could be caught and brought back, it was a, a very worthwhile, profitable exercise. So no doubt there would have been people looking for him. If they had found him, they'd have obviously taken him back to Philemon. But Tychius now is going to protect him for that on the return journey. Um, but again, these letters, the letter to the Laodiceans is referenced, probably the Ephesian church. They were all very close to each other. And then obviously this one mentioned a letter, the letters we have in the Bible to the Colossians. And then in addition, this personal letter to Philemon, and again, also intending to encourage the congregation there. Um, Paul kind of stops short, though, from actually demanding Philemon to give Onesimus his freedom, and we'll see that unpack as we go on. In actual fact, total freedom may not have been a good thing either, um, and we'll, we'll talk further, but at that time, if Onesimus had just been totally freed, actually it could have been a bad thing, because all the time he's part of a family in a sense, he's serving a master, there'd have been food, there'd have been shelter, there'd have been clothing. If he'd have been totally freed, unless he'd have had the resources and the means, he may have ended up just starving to death as a number of runaway slaves otherwise would have done. So it's interesting, but I, I think that's, there's, a, there's a lesson there for us because, you see, we've been freed because of what Christ has done for us. But we've not been given freedom just to go off and do our own thing. That wouldn't have helped us either. You see, we need that feeding and protection and clothing. And that's what we get in Christ. So... In a sense, and we'll look at a, a scripture in a short while, but we've not been freed just to go off and do our own thing. We're now a servant of Jesus rather than a servant of the world. You see, you don't get a, a free pass. You're either serving the world, the flesh, and the devil, or you're serving Christ. There's no middle ground. Just a bit more of the, the background to the situation here. The estimates suggest that there were anything up to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. It was actually quite a, a serious situation. I mean, we do know that at its peak, Athens, uh, in Greece, had about 21,000 citizens. Okay, and there was about 10,000 foreigners that lived there as well. But there were 400,000 slaves. I mean, it was so disproportionate. And Rome, no doubt, was not much different than that from what we understand. Yeah, men and women were traded like pieces of chattel or just merchandise at that time in history. The average slave sold for 500 denarii. Uh, just to give you some idea, that's a day's wage, 500 days wages. Okay, or you think, you think what you earn in kind of two years approximately, or just under, that's the kind of value that have been placed upon a slave, an average slave. But educated and skilled slaves were sold for as much as 50,000 
denarii. So there was real value attached to these individuals. A master could free a slave if they wanted to, or the slave could buy his freedom and raise the money. And there's actually an example of that in Acts 22, 28. It's kind of referenced there as well. So that was a possibility, but of course it's very unlikely the slave would be able to get that kind of money. If a slave ran away, the master would register the name and description with the officials and that then slave would be on a wanted list and be hunted down, as we mentioned a moment ago. The law also permitted a master to execute a rebellious slave. So you see the situation that... Onesimus' life effectively is on the line for the crime that he's committed. And that's where the real challenge now comes in for Philemon. He's facing a real dilemma. Because if he forgives Onesimus, what would other masters think? And, of course, what would other slaves think? What kind of issue would that create in the local community there in Colossus? As others would look on at this. And then, if he punished him, how would that affect his testimony? And that's an interesting thing because he's a leader in the church and people are going to be looking at him now to see how he's going to react and deal with this situation. Let's uh, jump into the text. So Philemon verse 1. The first thing we read there is Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. That's the, the first thing we need to highlight because at this point, to you and I, Paul is a prisoner of Rome. Paul would have been chained to Rome uh, there have been potentially up to four guards each day that were taken in turns to be chained to Paul and stay with him. But Paul doesn't say that he's a prisoner of Rome. He says he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You know, in reality, that's the greatest freedom, to be a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You know, as far as Paul was concerned, he wasn't chained to Rome. Rome was chained to him. And you kind of can imagine the kind of conversations as those Soldiers were there guarding Paul. You know, you can just imagine Paul witnessing to every single one of them. You, someone gets the detail to go and guard Paul for the day. And they think, oh, here we go again. Another barrage about his God and about Jesus and about being saved. And But no doubt Paul did that every single time. Somebody was chained to him. They were the ones that wanted to get away probably. You know, Paul's there writing these letters as well as he's chained. And maybe saying to, to the guards, how, how do you spell beseech? You know, just, just writing these things down. Getting the guards kind of engaged in conversation. But Paul first of all says, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say it as a, as a tiresome thing. It's a privilege to belong to Jesus Christ. And Timothy, of course, Timothy had joined up with Paul in his journeys and obviously stayed with him and was ministering to him at this point as well. And so this letter to Philemon, coming from two people that Philemon would have known well, of course Paul and Timothy. And then we read, Timothy our brother, unto Philemon our dearly beloved. There was obviously affection there. Paul obviously held Philemon in very high regard. He says, our fellow labourer. It's interesting that you know they'd worked together, they'd served together for God, for the things that God was doing. Um, and then we notice also, uh, we're given these two names, and our beloved Aphira and Acrippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. So this is the, the introduction. Now, uh, Christensen in the second century said that, recorded that Aphira was the wife of Philemon. And Acrippus seems to have been the son of Philemon, and also the one, uh, seemingly from uh, another reference we have, 
that when uh, Ephrathus was away, he would have taken over the, the ministry in the sense of pastor or uh, assistant pastor of the church there in Colossus. So the whole family involved in ministry. And it's interesting because if this is the case, Aphia being the wife of Philemon, she'd have had the responsibility for looking after the household duties of the slaves. So it's quite right that Paul is including her in this. He's not going behind her back and just getting Philemon to make a decision. And, you know, there's a lot of lessons we can pull from this. Husbands and wives should be involved in ministry together. It's a good thing. You know, it's not helpful and healthy when you have a husband that's serving and the wife's got nothing to do with it. It's very good and healthy and, and so on, as we see here. And Paul certainly encouraging that, not just dealing with Philemon, but also involving Aphia. And speaking to her as, as again, beloved Aphia. And then, Acrippus, obviously this younger character, our fellow soldier. You know, the, the word speaks a lot about young men being as soldiers that God uses. Paul spoke to Timothy about being a soldier and as such not getting involved in the affairs of this life. He says, you know, a soldier is intent and, and concentrating on the work assigned them. And they don't, you know, they obey their orders. And young men are, are to be like that. But the greeting also you see there is to the church in thy house. So the fellowship that would have met there. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we have sometimes a, a strange perception or understanding of the early church. But they were just, a lot of them, small fellowships. You know, chances are they weren't much larger than, than we are this morning. Not great numbers of people. I mean, certainly the day of Pentecost, we mentioned this the other day at Bible study. You know, there was 3,000 added in one day. But bear in mind, the church has started to spread out all over that area. And a lot of the churches were fairly small congregations of people that just met from house to house. You know, it's not up until about the 3rd century that with Constantine, suddenly the Christians that up until that point have been persecuted are then allowed to use the pagan buildings. And effectively Constantine really stops the pagans meeting as they had done and starts allowing the Christians to say, well, why don't you use this building now? And of course these were buildings that had a raised platform at the front and the pagans typically had had their own elite priesthood with special clothing and responsibilities. And the church starts to adopt many of those ideas, sadly. And we talked about this in those letters in the book of Revelation, the letters that Jesus writes. And certainly the letter to Pergamos implies this mixed marriage. Marriage of the world and the church. And, you know, I don't know if you ever thought, but, you know, why have we got all these wonderful, lavish, ornate buildings? And, you know, the, the Middle Ages and so on, they're a great period of time for architecture. Terrible for the church of Jesus Christ. So much damage was done. And today, if you talk to most people about church, they imagine a building with a steeple and probably a thermometer outside with a kind of save enough money to repair the roof or something. But that's what a lot of people think of church as being. But the church, scripturally, is us. We is the people. You can't go to church because the church is you. But this church then, that met a Philemon's house. Now, Again, I just want to highlight that we are to be living epistles. You see, Philemon's got this dilemma of, he's being asked to effectively present this letter to the church, but this letter is going to ask something of him, and he's really got to think about his response. Because his attitude and his reaction to Paul's request is going to have an impact on those that within the fellowship. 
Now, Paul in Corinthians says that you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. People look at our lives. It was sad the day somebody came up to me, speaking of another Christian, and they said, oh, this was a non-Christian speaking to me. They said, he's a bad Christian, isn't he? What a sad thing to say. And so often people will judge our God by the way that we live our lives. And so often we just get in the way and don't let people see past us to see that God is a good God. God is a forgiving God. You know, look at the people that Jesus spent his time with. And then often we would refuse to spend time with people that don't fit immediately into our social circle or whatever. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul again there says, For as much as you are manifest, uh, so you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. Paul says, you're a letter. You're a letter that God has written through his Spirit to the world around you. you know, Jesus said we should be light and salt and We should have an impact on the world. And the people around us should be able to look at us and see a difference. They should see Christ in us. You know, and so often it's, when things are going really well, maybe that's an easier thing, that we can be Christ-like when everything's going hunky-dory. But when we get those times in our life when we're under pressure, under duress, it's then most of all times that we should exhibit Christ. You know, as we said before, you know, you crush a lemon, you get lemon juice. You crush an orange, you get orange juice. You crush a Christian, you should get Christ. When we're under pressure, when we're in those difficult situations, then more than ever, we should be relying on God and on his strength. And those are the situations that people should be able to look at our lives and see there is something different about us. Philemon now placed in this kind of situation. Now, again, the congregation also here have some obligation because they would have to receive Onesimus. They'd they would have known that Onesimus had stolen Philemon and run away. So there is again that pressure, that responsibility on Philemon, but also on the congregation. The whole idea of these home groups, churches, meeting in homes, it was very common. Right up until certainly 200 AD, but really up to about 300 AD, as I mentioned a moment ago. In the third century, started to, to build these churches as separate buildings. But Paul frequently mentions these kind of home churches, home fellowships. And in the book of Acts, it says they met from house to house. Well, we carry on verse 3. Grace to you and peace. Now those two have to be in that order. It's always grace before peace. It has to be that way because you won't find God's peace until you know God's grace first. Chuck Mizzler said this, he said, The source of all blessings, grace is the unmerited favour of God, and peace is the state of spiritual well-being which flows from the reception of this grace. There is no grace unless God bestows it, and there is no real peace unless it flows forth from God's reconciliation with sinful man. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, often we pray, and, and I, we encourage each other to do that here, that if somebody's in need, that we'll pray for them. But Philemon wasn't specifically in any desperate situation, or wasn't in need as such. And Paul just says, I pray for you. I pray for you when, even when it's good. And that we should be praying for each other all the time. I thank my God, making mention of thee always, 
in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith. Now, in a sense, he's setting Philemon up here a little bit. Because he's saying, oh Philemon, you're renowned for your love and your faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. So kind of like, you can start to see where Paul's taking this. Notice also that God is the author of salvation. Paul doesn't congratulate Philemon on his conduct as a Christian, but he says, I thank my God. Paul recognizes that anything that's good is of God. If, if we look at each other and we see good things, if we see each other serving God in a wonderful way, we shouldn't be patting each other on the back as if we've done something special. It's God that's done it. Now we rejoice when God uses people. And it's right and proper that we encourage each other. But we need to understand that it's God that's doing the work. In fact, the more somebody's used of God, the more they're not really doing anything. They're just allowing God to minister and work through them. You can always tell a, a Christian that's serving without being rightly connected with God because they get stressed, they get pressured, and everything becomes difficult. The, very, the Martha and Mary situation. When we're worshipping the Lord, and it's just a privilege to serve. So now Philemon's love for the saints again is highlighted here. Paul had no doubt heard about things that Philemon had done, probably again through Ephrathus, the, the pastor there. And a couple of references you've got there, Colossians, uh, which is again the church that he would have pastored. Um, Paul's particularly glad that Philemon is this way towards the saints because he's going to use this now as the, kind of the, the reason for asking the question he's going to ask. Interestingly, Paul now introduces seven terms that we go through. Love, first of all, prayers, sharing, partnering with each other. It speaks of the good, goodness, heart, and being refreshed. And these ideas that Paul will, will bring in. And it's all the, 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 the fruit, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of somebody that God was already using. It carries on verse 6, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. There's another one of those in Christ Jesus. Again, without outside of Christ, none of this has any value or, or meaning. But in Christ. That word communication, that the communication, or the Greek word is koinonia, or sharing. The sharing of your faith. The fellowship of your faith. As you interact with other people may become effectual. It may bring forth fruit by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Paul is preparing Philemon, in a sense, for the request that he's about to ask in verse 14. By in a sense, acting out what God's grace has first worked in. So God has already done this work in Philemon, and Paul is saying, it's really good that you have this love, that you love the saints. You know, And it's good that we see this, this working out this fellowship of faith that you have, that you share with other people, the impact you're having on others, is kind of leading towards the question he's about to ask. He says, for we have great joy and consolation in thy love. You know, Paul says, it really pleases me as I look and I see you walking with God, and God working through you and the love that you show. And then he says this, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. We're going to come back to that, that expression the bowels of the saints, but really it's just speaking of the, our innermost desire and feeling. It's saying that the saints are refreshed 
because of your attitude. I mean, just, just pause and think about that. Apply that to your own life. Do you realize you've got the ability to be refreshing to other believers because of your relationship with God? As you are close to God and draw closer to God, the things that God does in your life can become a real blessing and a refreshing to other people. Really deep down. You know, and we're not talking about people that are holier than thou. You know, the, the church at large is full of people that are very religious. We need people that are very real, very honest, but are also very in love with God. It's refreshing. People that don't immediately condemn you. The people that know what it's like, because they've been there and probably still are there. And Verse 8 carries on. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to... In- Join thee, that which is convenient, and he's going to go on. What he's saying is, I could, because I'm Paul, the apostle, and he'll make a comment in a moment, I could ask you, I could could command you almost. I could be much bold in Christ. I could really tell you, Philemon, this is what you should do. But I'm not going to do that. Because of the love you already have shown and demonstrated, he says, I'm going to beg you, plead with you, ask you as a brother, to do that which is convenient. He's already used this word brother. Again, because Onesimus has now become a brother also. Interestingly, just going back to verse 7 for a moment. It says, for we have great joy and consolation in thy love. Now, there may have been a, a time around about this point. We know in AD 60 there was a great earthquake. Uh, and it caused a lot of des- desolation in various parts of that area. Um, and it may be on the back of that, Paul speaks of this consolation in thy love. And it may well be that Philemon had used that opportunity to serve and to minister and show love and compassion to other people. It's, it's something that some commentators have highlighted. But interestingly, Mark 10, Jesus said, You know how the Gentiles, they all rule over one another, and those who are in charge of the greatest. He says, but it shall not be so among you. Whosoever, because whosoever the greatest among you shall be servant of all. And Paul now, again, not lording it over Philemon, but appealing again to the work that Christ has done in his life already. He says, yet for love's sake. This is the basis upon which Paul is asking. He's not compelling, he's not insisting. He's almost implying, I could, but I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to ask. For love's sake, i rather beseech thee. I plead with you, I beg with you. Being such a one as Paul the aged. There's interesting use of words that Paul uses here. Now Paul at this point, probably just around about 60 years old. So he's not very, very old at this point, but actually because of the life that Paul had lived, no doubt, kind of almost prematurely old, the things he'd gone through and endured, and being in prison now, that's got to take its toll on you, just from a physiological point of view, just your physical frame gets affected by these things. Paul is saying, and Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Notice he says the same thing again. Still not looking around him at the walls and thinking, I'm trapped here in Rome. He says, a prisoner of Rome. He doesn't say that. He sees his circumstances as being ordained of God. See, love is regarded as the principle which demands a deferential respect. And again, Paul reinforces that appeal as an old man. The Greek word there is presbytos, 
It's, uh, it's a word that we find later referred to uh, in regard to elders, the presbytery. You, you've heard of that phrase. We use that word uh, in the English. Uh, but Paul is speaking of himself in that regard. Um, not necessarily old in terms of volume of years, but certainly in terms of experience. And then really, Paul says, verse 10, I beseech thee, and notice what he says, for my son, Onesimus, who I have begotten in my bonds. As a prisoner, Paul is saying, I brought this young man to the Lord. And I'm writing to you, and I'm begging you on behalf of my son. Paul speaking almost there as if he's adopted Onesimus and he's become part of Paul's family. He says, which in times past of thee was unprofitable. Now Paul making a, a play on the words here. As we said already, Onesimus, his name means profitable. And seemingly he'd rendered grudging service before his flight. But Paul, now indulging a bit of playful humour I suppose, and Really, the slave that had been unprofitable to you in the past has now become profitable to me, Paul says, but also to you, which in time past to thee was unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. Interestingly, the name Philemon means affectionate or one who is kind. So Paul really playing on these names. And again, I mean, these were names that they'd been given way before this situation had occurred. You just start to see how God had interwoven all of this, knowing what was going to happen. Really what Paul is saying is, if the slave is now going to live up to his name, if Onesimus is now going to live up to his name and become profitable, will you do the same, Philemon? And he says, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own vows. This, this expression again, Literally, it's receive him as you would receive me. That's what Paul's saying. And of course, that is what Christ has done for each one of us. Christ has gone to the Father and said, receive them as you receive me. You see, we can have boldness to enter God's presence through the blood of Jesus now. Hebrews 19.10 We've been clothed in Jesus' righteousness now. Philippians 3.9, James 2.23, and we've been adopted as his own child. Romans 8.15, Galatians 4.5, and Ephesians 1.5 all tell us of those things. And that's exactly what Paul is saying now. Receive him exactly as you would receive me. That's um, word, bowels there, in the, the Greek, it's a fantastic word, I'm not even sure I'm going to pronounce this correctly, but it's plagchinon. Okay, it's fantastic, isn't it? Uh, but really it means a spleen, from a medical terminology point of view. But it, it's just, it's speaking of something that's just so innermost to our being. And that's how Paul is pleading here. And Paul says, whom I would have retained, I'd have loved to have kept Onesimus with me. That in thy stead, because you're not here with me, he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. Paul is saying, I, I'm in chains because of the gospel. And it would be great if you were here finally because you'd have ministered to me. I know you would have done. But you can't be here. But he's here and I'd love to have kept him. But then Paul goes on to effectively say, let me just read these comments there. Uh, and this was conversion. Didn't alter his legal position as a slave. It didn't stop him becoming a slave. He was still the property of his master. It didn't cancel the debt that he had to his master. 
But it did give him a new standing before God and before God's people. And that's what Paul is really pleading with Philemon to take into account. This is why Paul is saying, I'm going to send him back, because he still belongs to you. You still own him. Paul carries on, but without thy mind, without your agreement, I wouldn't do that, because he's yours. That thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity, but willingly. Again, just appealing to Philemon here. See, love can't be compelled, because it's not love, if it's compelled. So Paul refuses to intrude here on a decision that must be Philemon's own. His reception of Onesimus was not even seem to be constrained because it would affect the whole church. If the if the fellowship thought that Philemon had just merely accepted Onesimus back because Paul had asked him, well that would make a very difficult situation. He says, For perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou should receive him forever. Now it's interesting here because what we're seeing is really the, the whole idea Paul's suggesting. I mean, he doesn't, Paul doesn't use this example, but it's the idea that we see with Joseph. You know, Joseph ended up being sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers. And yet he makes that comment to them later on when they all come to him that God intended it for good. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And Joseph sees that God had a plan in all of this. And that's exactly what Paul is alluding to here, that God has overruled evil for good. Onesimus did something that he should not have done. He stole from his master, he ran away. It wasn't good, but God has turned it around. You see, it seems that God's purpose in this brief parting was that Philemon might enter into a new relationship with Onesimus, which not even death would be able to dissolve. You see, if Onesimus had been profitable to Philemon as a slave, how much more as a brother in Christ? Now, just as an interesting thought here, you know, Philemon, it's almost inconceivable to think that he and his family hadn't witnessed to Onesimus. They'd have seen the church coming and meeting in their home. And no doubt they'd have been praying for him and probably other servants and slaves they had. We're not told how many others. It was just, at that time, it was the way it was. And It's unlikely that they wouldn't have prayed for him. And you see, he's now left for Rome, run away. At the time he left, it must have been hard for the family, for Philemon, for his wife, for his son. They must have felt maybe a sense of injustice. This slave that they no doubt fed and cared for and no doubt from his character would have treated well which then steal from him and run away. You, you can imagine the kind of hurt when somebody wrongs you. But now what Paul is saying is, Philemon, do you think that that could have all been part of God's plan? You know, when you were praying for Onesimus, you know, you don't specify how you want God specifically to answer those prayers. And sometimes things happen in our lives that we don't always plan for. Things happen as a result of our prayers that we don't realise at the time are a result of our prayers. It's only later we look back and we see what God was doing. And that God dealt with it in the way that he wanted to. And I wonder if Philemon at this point realised that, that actually God here was doing something quite probably in response to the prayers of the family, the prayers of the church. That Onesimus had come to know the Lord. 
And is he looking now at the situation which initially seemed all so bad and saying, actually, I see that God was in this. And really, if we look at things from that perspective, it should change the way that we look at the circumstances. You know, how often are our own hardships about a gateway to blessings that we have otherwise been denied? A comment from Chuck Misler, I think it's so true, that sometimes we go through difficulties, but God has a plan through those things. You know, do we really see problems like this? It is the Romans 8.28 idea. That God says all things work together for the good of those that love him and of the called according to his purpose. When Ernest was run away, I wonder if Philemon and his wife and his son and the church said, you know what, God's got something in this. You know, if you've had a, a child that's run away, walked away from God. You know, do we see that as actually something that God is allowing for his purpose to bring that child back? You know, we pray in those situations that it is exactly what God is doing. And sometimes people need to go out and just like the prodigal son, have a taste of the world to find out how bitter it is. You know, do we grant that God is able to answer our prayers in the way that he chooses? Because that's the, the issue, isn't it? You know, we would love God to answer our prayers in the way that we want them to be answered. But sometimes God will answer those prayers in a way that he chooses to do so. Not just because of the answer, but because he wants to use it as a way of causing us to grow. And us to learn to trust him more as well. And also, as 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven to 31 tells us, it's so that he takes the glory. It's so that we won't say, well actually, I, we, we worked this one really well. No, no, this is all about what God does. So Paul's pleading with Philemon to take Onesimus back. He says, not now as a servant. Yes, as a servant. But he says, but above a servant. Brother. It doesn't change the legal responsibility. It doesn't change the fact that Onesimus would still be a servant of Philemon. But he's saying, but now, more than just that, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother, beloved. You remember Paul used that expression of Philemon himself about a beloved brother earlier on. And now he's saying, Philemon, I want you to take Onesimus as a beloved brother. And he says, he's specially beloved to me, but how much more unto thee? Both in the flesh, because if you've got him back now as a servant who loves the Lord, he's going to serve you better. And in the Lord, he's a brother that will be with us forever, for eternity. It's a, it's a, it's a win-win situation for Philemon. He's getting a servant back who's going to be a good, hard-working servant now because his relationship with Christ has now been established. He's now found Christ. And as a Christian, we should work harder than the people in the world do. The Bible makes it clear that, I mean, Paul speaks to Timothy about, you know, the name of our God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. We should work hard for our masters. For those that we're employed by, for those that we work for, for the, you know, because even in that, there's a, a witness. Again, earlier we were saying about being a, a living epistle. You see, this relationship between the master and the slave is now on a tiny different plane because both are in Christ. Onesimus was now both Philemon's slave and his brother. He had a, a brother for a slave and a slave for a brother. But again, the, the dilemma. If he was too easy on Onesimus, it might influence other slaves to become Christians just to influence their masters. That was a real problem. 
If it was too hard, it would affect Philemon's testimony and ministry at Colossus. So this needed to be handled properly and through prayer. I just want to highlight again, I mentioned this verse, or I've come to this verse, Romans 6, 16, firstly, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience to righteousness. Paul is saying there, you're going to be somebody's servant, you're going to be somebody's slave. You're either going to be the slave of sin, which will lead to death, or of obedience, which will lead to righteousness and to life. You either serve, as you said earlier, the world, the flesh, and the devil, or you're going to serve Jesus. You, you, you can't have that middle ground and say, well, actually, I'm not, I'm not going to serve anyone. Because the moment you make that decision, you're already serving the flesh. Another important verse is in Romans 14, verse 7 and 8. It says, For none of us lives to himself, and no man dies to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. And whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. You know, but it's a privilege, and it's the ultimate freedom that we can experience as a human being to serve Christ. Where we're no longer bound by the world and the desires of the world. And In the last few verses, Paul is going to just conclude. Really, Onesimus may have robbed Philemon of a substantial sum. You know, perhaps, as we said earlier, the cost of that long journey to Rome. But Paul is now going to offer to pay restitution. Even though Paul is urging forgiveness, that debt still has to be paid. Paul is not suggesting that we just wipe the slate clean in that sense. He's asking for forgiveness, but he's not suggesting that we ignore the debt. Because, of course, God cannot ignore the debt of our sin. The price had to be paid. It's one thing being welcomed back and forgiven, but that debt had to be paid. And of course, that's what Christ did for us. God didn't just say, oh, I forgive you, come back in. God sent his only son to pay for that sin. And Paul, just as Christ was willing, Paul was willing to take that debt upon himself, to pay the debt of whatever it was Onesimus had robbed. Whatever the real cost of Philemon was, Paul is saying, I'm willing to pay that. As I said earlier, Philemon, a type of the father. You know, we'd rebelled, we'd run away from God, we'd fallen short of God's standard. And Christ says, receive us to the Father, receive these people as you receive me. He says, and I will pay their debt. You see the incredible design. Again, the heart of the gospel wrapped up in this lovely short letter. Paul then carries on and just says, if thou count me therefore a partner, it's a Word, the word partner there is again that Greek word koinonon. It means to have in common, translated communion and fellowship and so on. If you would count me therefore somebody with whom you have fellowship, somebody who's united in this together, in our service of God. If you count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. And there you have the gospel. That's again what Christ has done for us before the Father. Christ has said to receive each one of us to the Father, just as Christ would have been received of the Father himself. And then, if he has wronged thee or owed thee out, put that on my account. What grace. Paul had no need to do this, no obligation. It was just grace. Onesimus couldn't pay that debt himself. 
And so Christ says, the debt has got to be paid. I'll pay it. And that's again what Christ has done. Paul is saying again that just as we have fellowship, himself and Philemon, so now that fellowship should be extended to Onesimus. Again, because of our relationship, Paul is urging him to invite him into his family. And that's why, again, the letter's not just written to Philemon, but to his wife, to his son, to the family. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, we read, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be rich. Another simple summary. Very applicable to the circumstance here. In Romans 5, verses 6 to 8, we read, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. We didn't deserve it, we couldn't earn it. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man would some even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ said to the Father, if they've wronged, put it on my account. And all our sin was placed upon him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he that has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Onesimus goes back now with this knowledge that the debt is going to be paid. And in that sense, Philemon doesn't have anything against him other than now just simply to forgive him. The debt has been paid. Paul is willing and offering to to pay all of that. I just want to read this to you. I've read this once or twice in, in the past, but I think it's so powerful. Let me just read this. It's like a, it's a, a conversation, if you will, between God the Father and Christ the Son before Christ came to pay for our sin. And so the Father says to Jesus, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And thus, Christ replies, Christ returns, O my Father, such is my love too and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand shall thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. It's just what Paul was saying, but this is the, the bigger scale. The father returns and says, But my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them... I will not spare thee. And so the son replies to the father, Content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it, and though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. The man that wrote this, a man by the name of Flavel from the Puritans, then made this comment. He says, Blush, O ungrateful believers. O let shame cover your faces. Judge in yourselves now. Has Christ deserved that you should stand with him for trifles, that you should shrink at a few petty difficulties and complain? This is hard and that is harsh. 
Oh, if you knew the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is wonderful condensation for you, you could not do it. Just saying, when you think the debt that we've been forgiven, how can we moan about the, the odd few challenges and trials we endure and we go through? As Paul also said, you know, the things we go through now, they're just but for a short time. Not worthy to be compared to that which is to come. But again, Christ took upon himself everything and paid our debt. Paul seemingly now taking the, the pen of his amanuensis to effectively sign it, this kind of IOU that he's giving to Philemon. He says, I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. I will repay it. Albeit I do not say to thee, how thou owest unto me, even thine own self besides. Now, Paul here, pointing out to Philemon, by the way, I was the one that led you to Christ. You know, and Paul not in a disrespectful way or boasting, but saying, Philemon, it's because of my witness to you that you now know Christ, that you're saved. You owe me your own life in that sense because I witnessed to the Father for you. I witnessed to you of the Father of the Son that you came to that relationship. But Paul again, just taking the pen and signing it and saying, I'll pay everything, whatever it is, you know, but I don't need to tell you how much you owe me already. Verse 20, yes, brother, Paul says, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Once again, that expression. Just refresh me, just deep down. Let me know that this is resonating with you, that you've heard, that you've understood, that this is going to be something you will do willingly. He says, you know, gathering up all of that Paul has said here, you get that yay, it's kind of a conclusion here. He's just adding this final plea. And again, since Philemon had refreshed the hearts of the saints, already Paul's referred to that with his deeds of love, now Paul is asking that Philemon not neglect that opportunity to do the same to Paul, that Paul would be encouraged, because he sees this unity, this love, this reconciliation, which really is the heart of the gospel. Again, only the Lord could enable Philemon to show this kind of grace to someone who had wronged him. But Philemon can do it on the basis of what Christ has forgiven him. And really Paul making Philemon aware of that again. Verse 21, having confidence in thy obedience, in thy obedience I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou will also do more than I say. I don't think Paul's trying to twist his arm at this point. I think Paul's genuinely writing to somebody that he knows and loves and respects. He knows he's walking with the Lord. And saying, you know what? I've got confidence you're going to do this. And actually, you'll probably do even more than I've asked for you. Because this isn't about you. This is about what God is doing through you. It's really, again, because of the relationship that Philemon has with God, that relationship with his heavenly master. Paul is confident that Philemon is now going to do this. As I said earlier, that some have suggested that Paul is requesting Onesimus' freedom, but that might not necessarily be the case. The freedom is really not the issue here. It's that relationship. But with all, prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. I love this. This is Paul just saying, you know, I'm going to come and see you. Pray for me that I'm going to come and see you. Well, you know, Jesus effectively asked us to pray the same prayer because Jesus is coming soon. Paul is saying, I don't know when, but I'm going to come as soon as I possibly can. And we've just been studying in Revelation saying that Jesus effectively says the same thing to us. 
Clearly Paul was expecting to be released from prison. And actually from what we understand, it may well be that Paul had been released, did get opportunity to go. And no doubt would have seen firsthand that Philemon had not disappointed, that had fulfilled his expectations in this regard. And by the way, the, the your there, as Paul solicits your prayers, that through your prayers, that's plural, it's for the church. Another reason why this is intended, not just for Philemon, but for the church. And what a great encouragement it would be for the fellowship, as Philemon no doubt would have read this letter. Can you imagine the emotional situation as maybe that Sunday morning as they met together? Onesimus walks in the room. And all the people kind of look at Onesimus and they look at Philemon and Philemon gets up and hugs him as a brother. Says, welcome home. And no doubt Philemon could have said, this man's debts are forgiven, he's a brother. Welcome him. And the whole congregation would have just been so excited, no doubt. Just what an encouragement. And then Paul, no doubt, reading them this letter. What a challenge to them to forgive people that have wronged them. You know, we've all been wronged by people and we have no reason to hold on to that. You know, just bitterness just eats away at us. It affects us. I knew somebody some years ago that had held some bitterness for an issue and it really, it made them unwell. But what a freedom comes when we learn to forgive, not out of a sense of duty, but because we know we've been forgiven a far greater debt. And that's really the challenge that Paul has laid here to Philemon. This is, they salute thee, Ephrathus, now again, the pastor of the church, he's now with Paul at this point. He says, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. So with Paul at that point. And notice again, they're not prisoners of Rome or, they're, they're there in the circumstance they're in because that's where Christ wanted them. Also, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, Lucas, my fellow laborers, those that, there. So these kind of five individuals, but these, these four particularly are added onto this list. It was 11 years, by the way, prior to this that Mark and Paul had had that big falling out that we read about in the book of Acts situation with Barnabas and so on, you may recall. It was be two years after this point that Paul is going to tell Timothy to bring Mark with him. He says, because he's profitable to me. He's useful to me. You know, Paul here practicing what he preaches. He, he That reconciliation and restoration. Aristarchus was from Thessalonica. He was a companion of Paul on his third missionary journey. And of course Luke, we know, wrote the Gospel of Luke, wrote the book of Acts. And remained with Paul right up until the end. This other character that's mentioned, Demas, is an interesting one. Demas, later we find, deserted Paul abandoning the faith and returning to the things of this world. John Calvin made this comment, I think it's just insightful, he said, and if one of Paul's assistants, I mean, you think of all the people you could have served alongside, Paul must have been an amazing person to work with in ministry. If one of Paul's assistants became weary and discouraged and was afterwards drawn away by the vanity of the world, let none of us rely too much on his own zeal, lasting even one year. But remembering how much of the journey still lies ahead, let us ask God for steadfastness. That's just a really good quote. Because, you know, so often we may think we've got this zeal and enthusiasm for now, but there may well be a lot of the journey that lies ahead of us. And we still need daily to rely on God's steadfastness. And when we, in a few weeks' time, start our study through Psalm 119, we'll be looking a lot at these kind of things. How we can 
walk by faith, that daily journey. And the, the book ends, with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And Paul typically would always end his letters in this way after addressing Philemon in the singular in verse 4. He now reverts to the plural again, address the whole congregation. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit. It's the way Paul ends almost all of his letters. Just just one brief summary here from uh, Graham Scroge. He says this, there's a summary of values, there's a personal value here, is the, the light on the character of Paul's character. We see that come through. The ethical value is the focus on what is right here. You know, it's what Philemon does, not because he has to, because he knows it's the right thing to do. Providential value, God is behind and above all events. And we see that very clearly here. A practical value, of course, is the application of the highest principles to the commonest affairs. Just because Anesimus was a slave doesn't mean we treat the situation of any less value. You know, the same things apply, very practical lessons. And then, Evangelical value, encouragement to seek and save the lowest. Once again, we don't just go for the the people on our same social level or whatever. Anyone the gospel can reach and save. And the moment it does, they become part of God's family, a brother or sister. Social value, presentation of the relation of Christianity to slavery and unchristian institutions. I mean, Paul never speaks specifically against slavery other than slavery to sin. And that's the biggest problem. Paul doesn't condone slavery at all. The spiritual value is an analogy between it and the gospel. So the conclusion, well Martin Luther said that we are all anesthetists. That's us. You know, we were all those servants that had run away from a master. Praise God, because of Jesus there was somebody that was willing to take upon himself all our sin. That which he owes put it on my account, is what Jesus said for each one of us. So again, a beautiful picture of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Again, as Christ says on our behalf, charge that to my account, receive them as you would receive me. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this short little letter and just the many, many lessons that are in here for us. Lord, there may be this morning people here that need to forgive others. Need to let go of hurts or wrongs done to them. And Lord, we don't do it because just some benevolence on our part. We do it, Lord, because we have been forgiven a much greater debt. And Lord, you called us to show the same compassion and love and forgiveness to other people that you've shown to us. Father, we thank you too for the message of the gospel so clearly portrayed in this short letter. And Jesus, we thank you that you took upon yourself that which was our debt. Lord, just help these things to speak to our hearts and minds. Lord, help us to be such that our living epistles, by the way that we conduct ourselves, that other people would see your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your love, by the way that we live our lives as we walk in fellowship with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.